And I hope you noticed this morning, or maybe you noticed in your bulletin, and you'll grab one here in a few minutes, that uh, this month's June's church newsletter is out. Uh, we put that out in bright orange, hoping that that would compel the thunder to victory, uh, but it did not work. So uh, anyway, pick that up. In it is spelled out in the letter that I wrote, a bit of a plan that has to do with really several months' worth of work in relation to what has been called the Renew Campaign or a Master Planning Campaign uh, that we have here for our church facility. Uh, This is a big month in terms uh, of that uh, whole project, and uh, by the end of the month, I think we will have, if things go as planned, asked you as a church family to enter into a capital campaign. So take a look at the church newsletter and how that's going to unfold, and we'll be communicating with you more deeply as the month uh, moves along. But turn to Mark chapter 5, if you would. Mark chapter 5. We're going to be in verses 21 through 25. We're going to skip a few verses and then be in verses 35 through 43. In a sermon that I preached, oh, two or three weeks ago, if you were here you remember that I went through a list of fears or phobias that people suffer from. There was acrophobia and glossophobia, even something called pogonophobia, which was a fear of beards. And I'm sorry if you have that, but that's just kind of obscure and funny and bizarre to me. But anyway, there is, there is one fear that Scripture confirms as the ultimate fear. It's the fear that really infuses all other fears And it's what Job 18.14 calls the king of terrors. It's the chief fear of all mankind. It's the fear of death. Psalm 55 verses 4 and 5, we read King David who says, My heart is in anguish within me. Horror has overwhelmed me. Fear and trembling come upon me. Why? Because the terrors of death have fallen upon me. Do you guys like Calvin and Hobbes, the old Calvin and Hobbes cartoons? My children are just now getting into Calvin and Hobbes, so it's so much fun. Uh, to You loved it when you were a kid, but you love it even more when you have kids. And here's a, a cartoon from Calvin uh, that, I, that I ran down. He's in class, and he's saying to his teacher, Miss Wormwood, I have a question about this math lesson. Yes. Given that sooner or later we're all just going to die... What's the point of learning about integers? The teacher says, turn to page 83, class. And Calvin says, nobody likes us big picture people. (laughs) And as much as we try to distract ourselves away from the big picture, everybody in the human race understands the terror or the fear of death. Death is final. Death is universal and indiscriminate. Death is mysterious and unknown. We just don't like death. It's confusing and it's frustrating. And according to our original design, death is even unnatural. And because of all our anxieties about death, we quickly arrive at the question of all questions, which is, can anyone, has anyone conquered death? That really is the most compelling question in life. Has anyone conquered death? And in so doing, how has that person made it possible for me to triumph over death as well? Many years ago, a Canadian scientist by the name of G.B. Hardy, 
he began a personal search for the true religion. He said, I have two fundamental questions. Has death been conquered, and has it been conquered for me? And in his search, Hardy ended up the only place that anybody in that search will end up with Jesus Christ. Why Jesus Christ? Because Jesus has actually demonstrated power over death. And it's that resurrection power which provides eternal life for all those who put their trust in him. So when Hardy asked, has anyone conquered death and can that triumph be applied to me? After checking it all out, he concluded, all religious leaders in the world have occupied tombs. Only Jesus' tomb is empty. Only Jesus' tomb is empty. And one could easily say that Jesus' power over life and death really is the overarching theme of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This is why every gospel ends with an account of his resurrection. Each gospel is communicating that it is Christ and Christ alone who is the divine Son of God, who alone has the answer to the wages of sin. Only Christ has an answer to death. It's his resurrection life. And in the passage we're looking at today, we have the final miracle in a series of four miracles that give us great insight into the power and the authority of Jesus. And you remember back, the first miracle came in chapter 4, where we saw his power over nature's domain, as Jesus, with a word, controlled the wind and the waves. And then at the start of chapter 5, it opened with a Gentile man who was possessed by a legion of demons, thousands of demons, and Jesus drives them out of the man, and there we see his power over the demonic domain. And then last week, we met a woman with an issue of blood, or what's generally diagnosed today as an an obstetric fistula, and as this woman simply reached out a hand of faith, we see Jesus' power over disease. And so here now... In the final portion of this chapter, of this text, Mark saves the best for last. We see Jesus and his great power over death itself. Safe to say, there is no one who has ever lived, no figure in any religion that has exhibited this kind of power, this kind of authority. Jesus Christ stands alone. So let's turn... To our scriptures for this morning. I'm going to begin verse 21 of chapter 5. This will sound familiar. I read part of this last week. Inspired by the Spirit, Mark writes, And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet. And implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. Now skip down to verse 35. While he, while Jesus, was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? And I've mentioned this before. Notice they call Jesus the teacher. He's done 
miracle after miracle after miracle, but what title does he maintain? Teacher. It just shows how prominent his teaching ministry actually was. And despite all these wonderful miracles, he's still the teacher. Verse 36, But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. And he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. I pointed out last week, well, last week that this entire passage, verses 21 through 43, this, this passage contains a literary device often called a Markin sandwich. And that's a literary feature where an idea or a narrative will be introduced. It will then be interrupted by a new idea or narrative. Then after the interruption, the original idea or narrative will be concluded. So last week, we looked at that interruption, basically the middle part of the Oreo, as I referred to it, because Oreos are more fun than sandwiches, right? And in our study of the interruption, I shared three features of this woman's story, her disease, her desire to be healed, and ultimately her deliverance. Disease, desire, deliverance. And I suppose if I would have kept going and picked back up the story of Jairus and his little girl like I did this morning, I would have continued with another D word, the word delay. The delay of Jesus. And I say that because this whole scene starts in verse 21 with an urgent, desperate request. It starts with the synagogue ruler, Jairus, coming to Jesus, begging him to come and lay hands on his daughter because she is literally at the end. So in modern terms, you might say that hospice has been called into the house of Jairus. The family has been notified. Jairus has been praying and waiting, and she's only gotten worse. So in light of her hopeless condition, he now goes to the one who has developed a rock star reputation for doing miracles in and around Capernaum. He comes to Jesus, of course. And he says to Jesus, my little, my, my, my little daughter is at the point of death. Now, real quick, later on in this passage, verse 42, we learn that the daughter is actually 12 years old. And 12 was the age where a girl was considered to have become a woman in this culture. So hardly a little girl in the mind of, uh, of, of those first reading this account. But I bring that up to, to just point out that when Jairus uses the term little daughter, it's not a term that's to be applied to her age. It's really just a term of, of deep love and affection. And some of you dads will relate to this. When you have a little girl you love, she's always and ever will be your little girl. So the little girl is not little, she's 12, but in the mind of her father, she's his baby. She's his little girl. I can thoroughly relate to Jairus here. So 
So his appeal to Jesus is earnest and it's desperate. And verse 24 gives Jesus' response to the plea of Jairus when it says that Jesus goes with him. Meaning they're, they're on their way to Jairus' house. And, I, and as I said last week, just when the reader of this story is starting to deal with the tensions of this man being a synagogue ruler, a highly respected member of society, just when you start to think, okay, this guy's putting everything on the line by going to Jesus for the sake of his daughter, this sick woman comes out of nowhere and interrupts the story. And what's crazy is Jesus actively prolongs the interruption. He's got somewhere important to be, but he allows himself to get totally preoccupied. Remember, the sick woman just wanted to touch him and slip away. She did not want to be known. She did not want the attention. She had this sort of quasi-superstitious faith that said, if I just touch Jesus, the touch itself, the hem of his garment, that will heal me. But Jesus stops her and says, no, it's not some superstitious touch. It's, It's your faith. Your faith in me that's healed you. And as he has her tell her whole story, the whole truth, the passage says. And upon hearing her her story, the the great crowd of people around Jesus gets to hear him tell her to go in peace. Go in fullness and wholeness and cleanness. She has been reconciled to God and to her community. She comes for healing. She got eternal peace with God, more than she bargained for. But the biggest tension with how this whole episode plays out is this. You have a person with an acute problem being ignored so Jesus can stop and give his attention to a person with a chronic problem. And on the surface, that just makes no sense to us. It's irrational. You know, if these two cases, the sick girl and the suffering woman, if these two cases were wheeled into an emergency room at the same time, who would the doctor and the attending nurses immediately help? The girl, not the woman. The woman has been suffering for 12 years. Surely another hour isn't going to hurt all that much. But not the sick daughter of Jairus. An hour may be all the time that she has left. Yet Jesus gives his attention to the sick woman and not the dying girl. In today's world, this would get a hospital sued, right? We have Jesus behaving like a reckless doctor. This is is malpractice. Add to the mix a few other tensions that would have been obvious to the first century crowd. The woman is an unclean outcast. Jesus is a synagogue official, ruler of the synagogue, manager of that local assembly. He's an insider. She's an outsider. She's very poor. He's a person of influence. He's likely very wealthy. He's a man. She's a woman. And yet, Jesus is stopping to take care of her before he takes care of him. And by now you know this is always the way it is with Jesus. He gives his favor to the tax collector, not the Pharisee to the younger brother, not the elder, to the woman at the well, not to Nicodemus. To this point in Mark's gospel, his entire ministry, he's called a tax collector to be a disciple. He's healed a leper by touching him, healed a man with a withered hand who was made whole, has, has driven out the demons of the demoniac who, who was tormented with a legion. 
And these are the saddest, roughest, most messed up cases. And Jesus avoids none of them. He gets right in the middle of them. I like the way Pastor Tim Keller says it. He says, in a crowd, Jesus gravitates to the most messed up and to those who have messed up the most. So it's not the pulled together that get the undivided attention of Jesus. Jesus gravitates to the most messed up, to those who have messed up the most. So no matter where you're at in life this morning, Jesus is attracted to the most messed up, which should massively encourage you that Jesus is attracted to the most messed up. And if that doesn't encourage you because you don't really see yourself as messed up, well, then that reality should actually frighten you. Because it's you that Jesus would pass by. So now, 15, 20 minutes into the sermon, we get to our outline. And what I'm going to do fairly quickly is examine why it is Jesus has delayed going to the house of Jairus. We have to ask, what on earth is Jesus doing by delaying his arrival? And I think we can apply the delay we read about here to our own individual experiences of waiting on Jesus. Apply it to those times where we are feeling like that, that he's just never going to work on our behalf. Have you been there? Has anybody been there? Is, is he going to show up? Is he going to pull through? What's he going to do? I've been praying. I've been waiting. I've been waiting. There's the outline. When Jesus delays, it could be one of four reasons. It could be all four reasons. To test your faith, to train you for ministry, to turn your perspective, and to take you by the hand. So first, when Jesus delays, it's to test your faith. Look at verses 35 and 36. We perceive there that, G, that Jairus is in a hurry. But at the same time, Jesus is not in a hurry. And that's because the Lord of the universe is never in a hurry, anywhere, ever. Which is a huge problem because we, we are almost always in a hurry. And you cannot debate that with me because I went to Branson this last week. And the one thought that went into laying out the streets of Branson is, let's make it to where they can't get anywhere quickly. You've been to Branson, you know. But we need not go to Branson to learn this. We're always in a hurry. We're always in a rush. And Jesus just isn't. And what that means is the patience of Jesus is always a test of ours. And what's difficult for us is this. Everything on our world basically operates on a schedule. We are a culture that likes a schedule. We like structure, order, and being on time. And some of you right now, you know we have the Lord's Supper to take, so you're watching the clock looking to see if we're going to keep the morning schedule. It's first service. I know how this goes. There are, however, other cultures that don't operate this way. Whenever I've been in Latin America, I've been on about eight different mission trips to Mexico. And in Mexico or other Latin American countries, when do things start? When everybody gets there. And the gringos hate it. The Americans you take on a mission trip, they hate it. They want a schedule and they want times and they want it to all be followed. So the first several days of a mission trip, Americans are just incredibly frustrated because nothing is going according to schedule. How are we going to get anything done? Why are we here? 
We can't even operate by a schedule. You know what, though? We get frustrated with God for the same reason. We get frustrated with God for the exact same reason. We got a schedule. We are sure about how things in our life are supposed to be going. There is a sense of urgency to what we want for ourselves. And we just need God to come through and bless it. Problem is, His blessing and His grace rarely, if ever, operate on our schedule. Rarely, if ever, operate on our schedule. And if you impose your idea of what is the best schedule and timing and objective reasoning on why things should go the way they should go in your life, if you impose all of that on God, hear this, if you impose all of that on God and he doesn't come through the way you've designed, you will never feel loved by him and it will be largely your own fault. So don't Don't dare have the audacity to impose your plan upon God and then get upset with him when he doesn't operate accordingly. The self-righteousness wrapped up in that attitude is as foolish as it is appalling. And on a deeper level, you need to catch this as well, Jesus' attitude toward us, toward Jairus, is, is not this. It's not... I will not be hurried, but I love you anyway. It's, I will not be hurried because I love you. Big difference. And what's key to distinguishing the difference in these attitudes is, is, is you acknowledging that Jesus, in fact, Jesus, he knows what he's doing. Jesus knows what he's doing. This is why Jesus says to Jairus in verse 36, Do not fear only believe. The verb tense best translates, stop fearing, keep believing. You came to me in faith, Jairus. Keep the faith. I know you've been standing over there just kind of tapping your foot, wondering what in the world I'm doing with this woman. Don't drift. Stay with me. So when God delays, he's essentially asking you a question. Do you trust me? Do you trust that I know some things that you don't know? That I have reasons behind this delay that are bigger than what you can comprehend? That faith in me is what is best for you, and because I love you, I want to see your faith grow. The delays of Jesus test our faith. Second, when Jesus delays, it's to train you for ministry. Notice in verse 37 that he takes only Peter, James, and John to the house of Jairus. This is the first occasion in Mark when he calls out these three to do something. The first time he isolates them away from the twelve. And he has special plans for these three men. He's training the whole twelve, but he pulls these three out to more intimately train them. And this is where it all starts. So we have Peter, Peter, the sort of unofficial but understood leader of the twelve. And we have James, James who would be the first of the twelve to die, martyred for his faith in Jesus. And we have John, who would be the last of the twelve to die, dying an old man as a pastor in, in Ephesus. So Peter, James, and John, the first three disciples he called along with Andrew, the first three to see Jesus. 
as he's about to perform the most astounding miracle to date, which is to bring a dead person back to life. In the next chapter, he's going to send all the guys out to preach. And so here at the end of chapter 5, he gives them something to preach. He's training them, giving them some material, showing them who he is. So sometimes it's the delay itself. Sometimes it's what Jesus does on the backside of the delay. But in either case, when Jesus delays, he has something for us to learn so that we can better minister to others. The delays of Jesus are to train you, prepare you for ministry. It's also to turn your perspective. Verses 38 through 40, Jesus and his inner circle, Peter, James, and John, they, they essentially show up at a funeral. And I don't know how long the delay with the unclean woman had been. It could have been 20 minutes. It could have been several hours. I don't, I don't know for sure. Either way, they, they show up, and, and the funeral there has already started, started. They hadn't just missed her. The process of grieving her death, it was well underway. We see that by some of the descriptions used. So as, as they arrive, gathered at Jairus' house, there were already people mourning and wailing and weeping. Luke, um, as, he, as, as he tells this story in his account, that there were those there playing flutes. So just a full-on funeral had begun. And in our day, if you go over to Lattisaw Evans, the funeral home over here, you, you'll find it to be an almost painfully quiet place very still. Usually soft music playing. Joe Heiberger, if you know Joe, he's kind of a boisterous guy. Over there, he's always whispering, right? The understood mood of the funeral home is calm and it's serene. Well, not in Jesus' day. A funeral was a noisy event. Serenity was not the goal. Commotion was the goal. There were essentially three elements to a Jewish funeral in the time of Jesus. First, grief was expressed loudly. Again, in our day, we often try to temper the emotions of grief. In Jesus' day, those emotions were embellished even. Second, professional wailers or mourners were hired to sort of play up the grief. So maybe the more money you had, the more mourners and wailers you would draw in to express your grief all the more you'd have people come and they would cry and they would tear their clothes and they would stand in front of your house and go along with the funeral procession wailing, crying out, making a big scene of your grief. And then third, there would be the playing of a flute. And it would be playing using dissonant notes. So there was no real tune being played, just the disturbing dissonance of the flute that would sort of just accompany the whole Scene. So Jesus shows up amidst this wailing and mourning funeral. The child is dead, and he asks a question. Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And in saying those words, what Jesus was doing, he was redefining death as a temporary condition. He was defining death as something as benign as sleeping. And how does the crowd respond? Verse 40, they laughed at him. The old King James Version says, they laughed him to scorn. 
which means they're mocking Jesus, which tells us a little bit about the sincerity of their weeping. They go immediately from weeping and mourning to laughing. But with what he's about to do, he's going to get the last laugh. By delaying, he's going to completely change their perspective on death. He's going to reveal that the great enemy, death, is no match for him. To him, death is like sleep. And just as G.B. Hardy would later say, that's what everyone is truly looking for. Someone, something with power over death. Last, the last purpose for the delay of Jesus, it's to take you by the hand. Verse 41. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, and this is Aramaic here. Mark uses the actual words that would have been spoken in the day. Talitha kum which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. Now when the report came back to Jairus in verse 35 that his daughter was dead, Jesus could have said, oh no, she's not. Go back and check on her now. He could have said that and healed her from a distance. But he didn't do that. He comes to her personally and tenderly. He takes her by the hand. And he says something equivalent to what you would say to your kids on an unhurried Saturday morning. Honey, it's time to get up. Honey, it's it's time to get up. So for Jesus, waking her from death is just like waking a child from sleep. And yeah, he could have done that from a distance. But Jesus wants to be personally involved. He wanted to hold the child's hand. He wanted to see the faces of Jairus and his wife. He wanted to watch the three disciples as they stood there stunned. He didn't just want to perform an act of great power. He'd been doing that everywhere. He wanted to display a great deal of affection and love for Jairus and his daughter. This is just how Jesus comes to each of us, is it not? We don't accept the grace of God from a distance. We don't receive the love of God like some sort of cold abstraction. No, it it comes to us in a way that takes us by the hand. We are one to faith in Christ, largely because we're overwhelmed by his very personal love and grace toward us. He loves us. His power is unmistakable in this scene, but his love and his kindness, his charity, is actually really beautiful here. And that's what we have in Christ, a beautiful Savior. It's like what Bill Bright said at the end of a long and very fruitful career in ministry. Bill Bright, he was the founder of Campus Crusade for Christ, largest missionary force in the world. He said, I wish someone would have told me sooner that Christ was not just useful, but also beautiful. So the girl gets up immediately. Takes her by the hand. She gets up immediately. There's that word again. She begins to walk around. She's fully restored to health. She's, she's alive. No rehab. No convalescence. Just life. There's lots of parallels to the two stories that make up these verses. They are both females, the sick woman and the dying girl. Both healed by the touch of Jesus. She reached out and touched him. Jesus 
lifted her by the hand, both unclean in their condition, her flow of blood, her death. One was sick 12 years, the other 12 years of age. Both were referred to as a daughter, both given their lives back. The woman back to health and community, reconciled to God, this little girl back from the grave. Just a beautiful section of Scripture here. And to conclude, verses 42 and 43, the end of the passage says, that Jesus strictly charged them that no one should know this. Now why? Why? He's given this command for other times previous to this. What's his strategy here? He's just raised the dead. This is the miracle of all miracles. Why can nobody know about it? Everybody's about to know about it. Why the command to keep it silent? I think you could speak to a number of reasons, and many would be valid, but I think it ultimately boils down to this. It was simply not time to speak. It was time to listen. It wasn't time to spread the message of Jesus Christ. It was time to listen to him. What do I mean by that? Until the cross, which is only a few months away at this point in the narrative, until the cross, the full understanding of his mission cannot be known. It can't really be known. It can't be understood. Yes, he is the miracle worker. Yes, he is the greatest teacher ever. But far more than that, he is the son of God. And to fully grasp his mission, you have to understand his death. And that's on nobody's radar yet, except the scribes and Pharisees who want to kill him. But in it's, it's in his death where you really see the son of God. That's why the first time in the book of Mark where anybody says, anybody ever really finally confesses this is the Son of God, it is at the cross. It's in chapter 15. The centurion, looking at Christ crucified, understanding the truth of who he was, says, truly, this is the Son of God. So the full story must include the cross, and then after the cross, the resurrection. Then after the resurrection, Jesus commands what? Go. Go into all the world. Spread the news. Preach the gospel. Then it's time. Here, it's time to listen. At this point in the house of Jairus, the story is just not complete. Surely Jesus can be, uh, sure he can be seen as the conqueror of demons, the conqueror of disease, the conqueror of death, but he can't be fully understood until you see him as the conqueror of sin on the cross. His death on the cross, followed by his glorious resurrection, that enables him not only to give temporary life to a dead girl, but to give eternal life to all who believe. The cross is everything. I hope that you look to the cross in explaining Jesus and trying to understand Jesus, in looking at the delays of, of Jesus in your life, you look to the cross. The patient, enduring, long-suffering Son of God who died for you. Let's pray and then we'll move into taking communion together.
Father, thank you for your word and um, for these people who so faithfully and attentively um, sit under its teaching. Lord, I pray that as we move into this time of communion, um, that the gospel and, and its picture would be rich and full and on display here. Uh, thank you for this table, this meal that we're about to enjoy and celebrate together. It's in Christ's name, amen. Looking again there at the